This podcast is intended for a mature audience over 19 years of age and is provided on an educational and informational basis. Any material presented is for informational purposes only and should not be taken as a substitute for professional medical advice or as an endorsement or medical claim by Patterson Media, Everything Podcasts, or any advertiser. The facts on marijuana. Talk, you know, it's a hush-hush thing. Growing up, I would have a lifelong friend that found out that I smoked weed, and now we're not friends anymore. If you go smoke a joint compared to go having a shot, I would much rather see you on the street. History and these types of myths are used in different times in different places. This is the Canadian Podcast. I'm Don Schaefer. Today on the show... Hash. Hashish is the concentrated THC-rich resin of the cannabis plant, as well as varying amounts of its flowers and leaves that have been separated from the buds and compressed into sheet or brick-like form. It's not that popular here. Under one in five users make hash a part of their cannabis diet. But that's not the case everywhere, like in Egypt, where our producer Karen Habashi is from. It's a hush-hush thing. So you might find women, you might find men, you might find people all over Egypt smoking it or using it in different ways, but no one speaks about it publicly because of the stigma surrounding it. Cannabis is still very much illegal across the Middle East, but of course prohibition doesn't mean it's not available. Hash is the dominant form of cannabis in Egypt and much of the Middle East. It's resin from the cannabis plant, dried and compressed into blocks. It's often used with tobacco. They would use it in their hookah, which is the shisha. They would put it in a spoon, they light it, and they sort of smoke it. Sometimes they put it in a cup and cover it until it makes lots of smoke. They open the cover, you inhale it so you get the huge blast. This might conjure up images of smoky, sand-swept alleyways with the strings of an oud ringing mysteriously in the background. Because hashish has been used as a shorthand for the strangeness and otherness by Western storytellers talking about the Arabic world. So, today on the Canadian Podcast, we're going back to one of the oldest of those stories, originally told by Marco Polo, in 1276. There's this myth that the word hashish comes from the word assassin, or hashishin. So, we're going to look at that claim and find the truth in the myth. Who were the real hashishin? Was there really a secretive group of stone killers dominating politics in 11th century Persia? We'll also be talking to the owner of one of Toronto's most successful cannabis stores, who, like our Karen, is Egyptian. That's all coming up after the latest pot news. With the latest pot news, I'm Jay Coburn. Germany has announced plans to legalize cannabis for recreational use. The country's health minister said this would make Germany Europe's most liberal cannabis legalization project, but also its most tightly regulated market. The plans include an upper limit on THC content for users under 21 years of age. There is no set timeline for the plan and it still needs to be assessed by the European Commission. Although cannabis is decriminalized in a number of European countries, including the Netherlands, Malta is the only EU country with full recreational legalization. The province of Newfoundland and Labrador has ended its ban on cannabis vapes. 
the restriction was enacted in 2019 following a number of serious lung injuries being linked to cannabis vapes in the US. The decision to repeal follows a review of Newfoundland's cannabis industry by the provincial government. However, a ban on flavoured cannabis vapes will remain in place to limit appeal to youth, according to the Newfoundland government. Delta 9 Cannabis says it's laying off about 40 workers and scaling back growing operations. The company says it's reducing capacity at their Winnipeg cultivation facility by about 40%. The board of directors and executives have also agreed to reduce their compensation. Delta 9 has blamed market saturation, leading to a fall in the cost of bulk sales of cannabis, but they say they hope the layoffs are temporary. Elsewhere, late last year, Canopy Growth announced it was laying off 55 employees and restructuring its Canadian operation in a move aimed at moving the company towards profitability. Canopy owns popular brands such as Tweed, Seven Acres and TWD. That's the POC News. I'm Jay Coburn. Back to you, Don. Today, we're looking at Canadian cannabis with more of a Middle Eastern lens. My name is Samuel Gerges. I am a Ontario retailer. I own the Mary Jane's brand. We opened the first store to ever open in Etobicoke, legal cannabis store, retail. And we've been the number one store in Toronto now for about two years. We have a few other stores. We account for about 1% of Ontario market share with about three stores right now. I was born in Egypt. So I'm just sell weed and I'm Egyptian. That's really what I'm about. Our producer, Karen Habashi, called up Samuel to chat about selling cannabis as an Egyptian in Canada, starting with that stigma. Growing up, I would have a lifelong friend that found out that I smoked weed, and now we're not friends anymore because of that simple thing. And we've been lifelong friends, sleepovers and all that. And it's a common thing because it's so culturally not accepted. Nowadays, I think it's much more so accepted. My parents were very skeptical. They thought it was like hard drugs. They didn't understand. But fortunately, they were open enough to come with me to a dispensary and check it out. And they got to see for themselves that it's very similar to like an LCBO. People are just going to buy and get out of there. No one's loitering and smoking at the front or whatever they perceive weed to be. Because they think it's much harder than it is, obviously, because they've never tried it. So I think that's conditioned society, including in the Middle East, to look at it that way. Although I would say it's like all my friends in Egypt were all literally smoking hash. None of them were drinking. So it was much more accepted on the ground, I think, in the Middle East than alcohol. Samuel's a successful dispensary owner in an increasingly saturated competitive market. So we wanted to ask him about his opinions on the current state of legalization. As a cannabis entrepreneur, he has loads of data on the Toronto cannabis market. I should note that the team can't verify lots of it as it's from sources that aren't made public, but what we could verify was correct. Samuel's opinions are partly informed by his time running dispensaries, but also buying alcohol in Egypt, which he says taught him a few things about regulation. It's funny. In Egypt, we have a few different alcohol stores. One is Drinkies. I've visited a lot with my friends back in the day. And but we have alcohol visible in the windows. That's allowed. Even though Egypt, just as a core principle of the theocracy there, alcohol, is, it's a bad thing. And yet that's okay. But cannabis in Ontario, the AGCO forces us to cover our windows. So products and accessories may not be visible from the exterior. So it's more strict than a 
country where it's against the religion, where alcohol is against the religion, we're being more strict on cannabis in Ontario today. So we're in a very early kind of stage, I would say, where it's like we're not even able to uncover our windows, and it's dangerous. A lot of stores in Alberta were broken into and robbed because the windows are covered. No one could see. And they had to change that rule just because of what was happening. So tell me about your stores, how it began and where are you now? So it began, I was doing something completely different and literally invested a year and a half on a project and most of my money. I was working on a commercial property and I was going to develop it. And suddenly I hear that you could open a weed store all of a sudden. Next month, you could start to apply. Anyone could apply. No lottery, no nothing. And I just put down what I was doing. And I'm like, okay, I could circle back to this. Let's set aside this year and a half that I've spent and all this money. And let's go down this path. I'll probably cash flow faster. And I've always been so interested in weed. I just never thought it was possible until they greenlit it in Ontario. And it's been great. I feel fortunate to be allowed to open it. It's a tough industry. There's a lot of corporations trying to charge cost or close to cost on products to try to undercut and hurt little guys. I knew I was great at customer service, but I did not think we would build the sense of community that we have in Etobicoke. I have customers that text me. They're like, oh, the new girl's pretty great. They'll just tell me because they know. And they'll just like message me words of encouragement. It's so sweet. It's unbelievable. I never expected it. And it's like... I feel like I don't deserve it. They're choosing our store the most with their dollars. They're voting for me, for Mary Janes, with their money. And they're saying, we like what you're doing. Even though the price is not the cheapest price, but we like the combination of things that you're doing. We have good prices, but there's always going to be a corporation that could undercut us. There's probably many things to blame. Sometimes you're just picking a bad location, but at other times there's obviously a lot of regulatory strain. What mistakes were there when the legalization happened? I think overtaxation, there's a lot of red tape that pushes people away. And I think just not setting clear boundaries. So there needed to be stronger controls. There needed to be like a minimum pricing set because they have the ability to do that. They regulated the ability for the AGCO to set a minimum price. There's just not enough pressure in that direction because to them, they're like, why don't we just sell more? And it's not going to sell you more if everyone's just chasing down to the bottom. There's going to be a lot of stores that are going to die because they lower their price and they don't make up for it in volume. There's going to be stores that don't drop their price and get killed by one of these major corps that drop their price. So that's uncompetitive. It's not fair in a lot of ways. You know, at the same time, I do see that there are individuals, the people working for the AGCO, even the OCS, they are very well-intentioned, well-meaning people that do want to move forward cannabis. I feel like they're pro-little guy, pro-independent in a lot of ways, at least the OCS, In such a tough market, we wanted to know about Samuel's plans for the future. He's just opened a new store, so how is expansion going? I feel nervous expanding with how dangerous the market is, but I will continue to strategically do so, as I have, and will continue to be a problem for a lot of these big guys. They have all these big investors. Why can we do it with no retail experience, no understanding of a lot of the things that they understand, and they can't with unlimited money, PhDs, million-dollar in administrative infrastructure when we have just like a mom-and-pop-style setup? Why can we do it and they can I think it's because we're just better at it. 
we're competitive where we could be competitive. The real estate, the branding, the bud tenders, the selection, the hours. And if we were given a head start of two years, if we were given $10 million investment to scale further, I think we would. So far, we have the highest percentage of market share per store of any network of stores pushing over a million dollars in sales a month. We're the top at that as well. I don't fully understand the reason why we're that successful. I try to, and I think with the recent store opening being only 60 days old, our Mary Jane's Oshawa location, and it's already in the top 200 of 1,500 stores. They have money, they have all these things, but what they also have is the ability to get into a major plaza, a Costco, a Walmart, a Canadian Tire. They won't look at an independent like they would with those bigger guys. So the prime, prime real estate is already taken, and yet we find our little ways, we make calls, we get on the ground and we figure it out. We find a spot that beats their spot. So it's been a very interesting run. I'm excited to see what the next year or two or three is going to look like for the whole market and for Mary Jane's. It's going to be really interesting. That was Samuel Gerges, owner of Mary Jane's Cannabis Stores in Toronto. Okay, let me tell you a story. This tale starts sometime in the early 12th century AD in Alamut, a region of northern Persia. To the north are mountains covered in thick forest, to the south, dry desert. You arrived here a few days ago, alongside a group of young men and boys similar to you, between 12 and 20 years old. Lots of the group are fighters. The entrance to the castle wasn't grand, and the door was hidden, the rock face swinging open when your guide pressed his palm to just the right spot. You were brought here to meet the old man of the mountain, a dark and stoic figure. The most important people in Persia are terrified of him. If you're good enough for him, you might join his feared group of trained killers. There were cushions on the floor as if they expected you to lie down. Then the pipe appeared. Small boulders of something brown and earthy were smoldering in the bowl of this pipe. From the way your guides, or perhaps guards, watched, you could tell this was routine for them. There was anticipation in their eyes. The pipe was handed to you, and you were nervous, but didn't want to appear cowardly, so you took a deep, deep pull. <coughs> Harsh smoke filled your lungs. It tasted like nuts and spices. Pleasure washed over your body, and you began to smile. Now you know why there are cushions on the floor. You lean back. And then you died. And woke up in paradise. Paradise is a walled garden with streams of milk and honey. Your every want and need is taken care of by an army of beautiful servants. You still can't believe your eyes, and you've been here for four days now. Now you're resting in a cushioned corner, a half-eaten plate of rich food in front of you. You've never felt so satisfied with your lot in life, or death, as it may be. 
A servant appears with a pipe. You take a deep breath and exhale. Your eyes are closed, and when you open them, you're back in the castle. In front of you, the old man of the mountain is standing, staring, appraising you. Welcome back to the realm of the living. His voice shocks you back to full consciousness. He explains to you that you died and went to paradise, but he brought you back because you have a mission here on Earth. His mission. But you can get back to paradise. All you have to do is follow the old man of the mountain. Then, when you die, either by failing your mission or after completing it, you'll find yourself back in paradise. You are one of us now. Hashashin. You might have heard that the word assassin comes from hashish and the hashishin of Alamut. The order of the assassins are all over popular culture. There's the blockbuster video game series Assassin's Creed. Nothing is true. Everything is permitted. Dan Brown's book, Angels and Demons, also features a modern-day hashishin as one of the main characters. We are under attack from an old enemy. And the Netflix series Marco Polo has a version of the same story in it. But it's a myth, possibly started by Marco Polo himself. The story you just heard is fiction based on Marco Polo and other questionable Western historians' retellings, with some embellishment from our show's writer, Jay. We're telling you this story because it reveals things about how the Western world viewed hash in the Middle East more broadly. The Order of the Assassins did exist, but there's no evidence they tricked young men into becoming fanatics using hash. The old man of the mountain Marco Polo referred to was probably Hassan Asaba, the founder of the Nazari Ismaili Muslims, who did capture Alamut Castle and did strike fear into the princes of northern Persia. Hassan Asaba, the founder of the polity, is supposed to have executed his son for consumption of alcohol. This is Dr. Shiraz Hajiani talking to our show writer, Jay. I am the Walid bin Talal postdoctorate fellow at Harvard University and a research associate in the Transcendence and Transformation Initiative at the Harvard Divinity Center for Study of World Religions. Dr. Hajiani is currently writing a book on the life of Hassan Asaba. And he's also translated historical documents about him. So if we're going to ask anyone about the man who executed his son for drinking, it's Dr. Hajiani. Now, what that tells us is a couple of things. A, bad family values. But more importantly, pertinent to what we're discussing, alcohol is a no-no, right? So what does that tell us about their usage of hashish? They probably didn't. If they hung up about alcohol in the way that this story tells, they're probably not using other narcotics either. Hassan Asaba was a deeply religious man. He was the founder of what's now a small branch of Islam called the Nazari Ismailis. In the 11th century, though, they were an influential force in the Middle East. They had something like 150 fortresses and military installations. And they stretched from present-day Afghanistan all the way into Syria. One of those fortresses was their headquarters at Alamut. 
The Nazaris were a political and religious faction, like many others in the 10th and 11th centuries, but most of the written history we have comes from their enemies. In fact, the first use of the term Hashishin was by another faction of Ismailis, possibly trying to slander the Nazaris. But the term was picked up by another religious group, the Crusaders. They are not very knowledgeable about the people. They don't particularly care about learning about the people. So they pick up these stories and they're more like something that you would tell at a campfire or when you come home from your great adventure, you're telling people about those strange and wondrous things that you heard. That myth got picked up by different writers, including the famous Venetian traveler Marco Polo. He wasn't even born until over 100 years after Hassan Asaba died. And by the time he visited the region, the Nazaris were long gone. The myth is told and retold by different people with different lenses. And there are various developments of this to the extent that in 1930s, there was a book written by Vladimir Barthold called Alamut. Alamut was the major fortress of the Nizari Ismailis. And in this book, one of the critical analyses is that Barthold was writing about his own time. This was the writers of Mussolini. And he was describing organizations that were anti-fascist. Right? So history and these types of myths are used in different times in different places. This myth and others were all designed to portray the Nazaris as different to civilized Western societies, to portray them as drug-crazed fanatics. My men do not fear death, Robert. They welcome it and the rewards it brings. That's a clip from the first Assassin's Creed game. The Crusader emissary would go to the Nizari fortress and the master of the fortress to show his power and the strength of his organization would nod and the Fedai, Fedai meaning self-sacrificer, would either stab themselves to death or jump off a parapet to their death. This is shown as a trick in Assassin's Creed, with the assassins jumping into a pile of hay to trick the knights. Show this fool knight what it is to have no fear. Go to God! So, this supposedly instills fear and awe into the ambassador and they're going to go back and tell about this. You know, it's kind of setting up this notion of they are so indoctrinated that they will do this kind of thing. And the injection of not just alcohol, but its usage of this other thing, hashish, which then makes it at a higher order, if you will. And then the Crusaders picking up these types of stories, they're embellishing them, and they're telling them as one does of their adventures. So they're coming back and they're saying, look, those soldiers were less than us because they were operating A, on some kind of narcotic, B, they had been indoctrinated. They were automatons. They didn't think for themselves. They didn't have the prowess that we do that sort of construction that's taking place. The Nazaris themselves were no strangers to using myth for their own ends. There are all these legends about how Hassan Asaba captured the fortress of Alamut using trickery. So the guy already during his lifetime, or just after, is being mythologized. 
So I found a short little narrative, which potentially is written about 60, 70 years after Hassan al-Sabah died. And in that book, that little six, seven-page treatise, he's already regarded as one of the sacred holy men of the past. Cannabis use is often racialized. If you listen to the previous episode of the Canadian podcast, you'll be well aware of how anti-Asian racism played into prohibition here in Canada. In the USA, there was anti-Black and Mexican racism. Dr. Hajiani says the story of the hashishin is not that different. You talk about prohibition in Canada, the United States has the same sort of history of prohibition. It is not just because of the pharmacological effects but because there's a huge amount of racial constructions that are underlying this. So the past is not simpler than the present. The past is just as complex as our times, and we have to look with these sorts of lenses into the past. So what truth is there in the myth? We do know that the Nazaris carried out successful assassinations on many of their enemies, including major political figures. Dr. Hajiani has seen a hit list from the first three Nazari rulers' reigns. And over those 72 years, the hit list lists a total of 75 assassinations. The first one was an assassination of Nizamul Mulk, who was the prime minister of the major ruling party. But most Nazari strongholds were on trade routes. That made them siege targets. Those assassinations often happened after attacks on Nazari strongholds. So the assassinations are not initiated, they are responsive. And there are various of these attacks that are claimed and celebrated by the Nizaris. At least that's what the texts tell us. But within 200 years, even Sunni scholars are saying, you know, that first attack that's attributed to them, maybe it wasn't the Nizaris. Maybe it was caught intrigue. One minister against another, one faction against another. So I think it's fair to say that Hassan Asaba and his followers weren't pacifists, but they weren't necessarily the cold, ruthless murderers that they're often portrayed as. Hassan Asaba did execute two of his sons, the second for alcohol consumption. The punishment for that is usually 40 lashes. So in my analysis, I look at that and say, is this the way that the chroniclers are recording that there was a threat to dad's authority? There was a threat to dad's power, perhaps. So Hassan Asaba was a complex man, spiritual, scholarly, and ruthless, a mythological figure even in his own time, with historians, crusaders, and mouthy Venetian travelers embellishing their stories with drug use and crazy religious fanaticism. But what about the garden paradise with the wine, women, and hashish? Hassan al-Sabah, the founder of this polity, had an ecological bent to him. So once they capture a fortress, it is said that he had trees planted and water supplies. Now, these are essential. If you're living in a fortress high up on a mountain, you need water and you need food to survive in case of sieges. So he's building these places up. And the concluding remark of the historian is that 
what he had done here, there is no fortress like this anywhere in the world. It's paradise. Okay, that's about the closest you get to that. The Nazari Ismailis were largely wiped out by Genghis Khan's Mongols and the survivors scattered around the globe. Today, there are thought to be between five and 50 million of them, but their historical records were largely destroyed in that scattering. In the case of the Nazari Ismaili Muslims, we also have to think carefully about what Christian crusaders thought of Muslims and Middle Eastern people. When we look at history, especially where cannabis is involved, we have to take into account who wrote that history and what they thought about cannabis users at the time. On the next Canadian podcast, we're talking about medical cannabis, intellectual property, and the newest advancements in cannabis medicine. Research in Canada has definitely taken a hit, and I hope that we see some changes moving forward. And in the meantime, we do what we can. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Canadian podcast. I hope you'll join us for the next one. Hit the subscribe or follow button to make sure you do. The Canadian Podcast is an everything podcast production in partnership with Patterson Media and is sponsored by westernbuzz.ca, launching January 30th. Thanks to our creative director, Cliff Dumas, showrunner Karen Habashi, senior writer Jay Coburn, and audio producer John Massacre. I'm Don Schaefer. Another Everything Podcast production. Visit everythingpodcast.com. Subscribe wherever you get your podcast.